Morning, everyone. All right, so um, we are in the midst of a three-part series um, right now called The Glory of Christ. So we're looking at three glimpses of the glory of Christ in the Gospel of John. So that term, glory and glorify, um, shows up quite a bit in the Gospel of John. And so we're looking at a couple of key places in the Gospel to really fix our attention on Jesus and see his glory. So last week it was the glory in the flesh, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Um, This week it's the glory in the wine, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And the next week, the glory in the blood, um, in chapter 12. So before we dive into uh, chapter 2 here, the Bible, what, what, what is the Bible? Do you view it like a road map? Um, certainly it is that. It's helpful. It shows us the way to go, um, God's way, how to follow his truth. But I would say that it's more like a treasure map than like a road map, even though it is like a road map. And the treasure is God himself. The Bible is intended to lead us to God. God himself is the greatest treasure. Um, If God isn't in heaven, like heaven's not about the real estate. (laughs) It's not about the value of golden streets. Heaven is about who is there. God himself is our greatest treasure. So the Bible, as we read the Bible, we really ought to be on the lookout for the treasure. We ought to be like treasure seekers, treasure hunters, searching for the beauty, the glory, the value that is God himself revealed to us through Christ. So, the glory of Christ. This is why we're considering this series here. Um, So, so important for us to focus on Christ and see his glory, just to do it intentionally, intently, as we read our Bibles every day, um, and certainly as we study the Gospel of John this morning. So one little illustration of how this is helpful for us, needful for us. Um, So I think this was back right around 2000. I think it was right before Hannah was born. We visited my, uh, we went on vacation in Florida, my grandfather and his um, second wife, um, first wife passed away, um, were retired. They lived in uh, Kissimmee. Is that how you say that? Um, Florida. Kissing me. Okay, thank you for correcting me. Um, so anyway, we were staying in Orlando. Orlando. <laughs> you can correct me again. Um, so we needed to drive to wherever that place is, where my grandfather was living. He, he's since passed away. Um, and we're driving along, and I remember this. Was, this was like one of those thank you God moments for the illustration. So, you know, Florida, it's hot, it's kind of like beach area, and there's this billboard off in the distance with some scantily clad woman, and so I kind of noticed that, so I'm looking down at the road to avoid this billboard, and Beth says, wow, look at that, and what she was pointing to was, I don't know, almost, it looks, you've ever seen it when when the sunbeams kind of shine through, I'm not sure the real description, but it's almost like what you would expect when Jesus returns, you know, these beams coming down, and it's just beautiful. 
So she wanted me to look at that, which means look back over in the direction of that billboard above it and kind of look at the sun, even though not really because it's kind of obscured with the clouds and whatnot. So I did that, and I stared at the sun for a few seconds, and then obviously need to get my eyes back on the road so we don't end up in a ditch. And on my way back down to the road, my eyes went through that billboard. But, you know, if you stare at a light bulb, for a minute you get like a light bulb spot, right? So I couldn't see her on the billboard because I'd been staring at the sun. So it kind of blinded me to this false glory, this thing that might, you know, allure and tempt us. I was just blind to it because I'd been focusing on the sun, the glory of the sun. So that's what this is all about, is read the Gospel of John. This is like just whet your appetite. Read the whole Gospel and be on the lookout for Jesus because that's what the gospel is all about, to show you the glory of Christ so you can see. God wants us to know him. Took on flesh and blood so that would happen. And so we can actually see him and know him. And if we see him in all of his glory, all the stuff that tends to compete with our heart's affection for first place is just going to lose its competitive power. It's going to lose its savor. So, um, again, that's kind of the purpose of the series. Paul talked this way. We considered this verse last week, these verses. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. When this happens, this is how you start to talk. Paul had this impressive spiritual resume, and he put his confidence in that until Jesus stopped him in his tracks on the Damascus Road, and then his eyes were opened, even as he was blinded, His eyes were open to what was really valuable. So he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ because he's the true treasure, surpassing value of knowing him. So I'm just going to, pray again briefly here. Thankful for Carl's prayer. I'm going to pray briefly here. Um, Actually, a a prayer of A.W. Tozer. I think Alice Hope sent it to me recently, and I remember reading it a while back, and it, I think, fits well as we head into our consideration of John 2. So pray with me here, and then we'll dive in. Oh God, I have tasted your goodness. We have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied us and made us thirsty for more. We are painfully conscious of our need of further grace. We are ashamed of our lack of desire. O God, the triune God, we want to want you. We long to be filled with longing. We thirst to be made thirstier still. Show us your glory. We pray you so that we may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within us. Say to us, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give us grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where we have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so last week, the glory in the flesh. This week, the glory in the wine. There is an outline in the bulletin, if that's helpful. The points will be up on the screen as well. So the first point, um, there are some curious details in this passage that we need to understand what's going on, or we're going to miss the point, okay? So the wedding, wine, woman, and water. Actually, we're going to consider the water later, but, you know, it starts with W, so we'll put it there. Um, So wedding, wine, woman, we're going to consider those details here. Look at verse 1, John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Mary may have had some like catering responsibilities you know, food, wine, um, for this wedding. With her involved and concerned like this, and Jesus and his disciples invited, it's possible that this was a wedding of, you know, a relative or a close family friend. But the more important detail is running out of wine was a really big deal back then at a wedding. A serious problem. It was a serious failure, actually, in the expectations that were placed on the groom's family, the groom and his family, in kind of the hospitality expectations of the time. So this is a big problem. It was shameful. It was embarrassing. So you have an honor-shame culture, which still that's the case in some Middle Eastern and and Eastern cultures. Um, The family name is at stake here. That's a really big deal. You want to avoid that at all costs. So believe it or not, there's actually some evidence that the family could be open to liability (laughs) um, for failing to discharge their hospitality duties. So particularly from the relatives on the bride side um, against the groom. It's crazy. We're like, what? Really? You could like sue somebody for not being hospitable enough at the wedding? Well, apparently. So The financial responsibility for the celebration was on the groom, and he needed to deliver. Otherwise, it was a shame. It was a real failure. So it's not like, you know, hey, well, it was probably like 11 p.m., and, you know, they had the hall rented till midnight, so they could just run to the store, and somebody could put a few bottles on the credit card, or, you know, they could bump up the send-off time and try to make do. No, weddings in the first century in, in this culture would last up to a week I don't know what day of the week it was, you know, as far as the wedding is concerned, but there could be a few days of celebration left. So this is a problem. Mary's concerned, and she asked Jesus for help. Verse 4. Jesus said to her, how should we read this? Woman, (laughs) woman, what do you bother me for? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Does that throw you off? Has that ever thrown you off before? Should Jesus be speaking to his mother like this? You know, is he sinning? Obviously not, but sounds kind of rude. Is he being rude? Well, this same term is used later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 26. I think we have that verse. So when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, so Jesus is hanging on the cross, and John, the apostle, is beside Mary, the mother of Jesus, looking on, he said to his mother, 
Woman, behold your son. In other words, he will take care of you. He's even thinking of his mother while he's hanging and dying on the cross and making sure that she's going to be taken care of. So that's not rude, right? Um, You can see the same thing in chapter 20 when Mary Magdalene has found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. She thinks the body's stolen and she's weeping. And so Jesus says to her, she doesn't know it's Jesus yet, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Okay, so really this this expression is more equivalent to something like ma'am in our day and age, okay? So again, bring that back to chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus said to her, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? It's a little weird. So Jesus isn't being rude, but this is kind of an abrupt response. Like it kind of is a little jarring. And so the real issue is, it's, it's both of them together, but Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Jesus is actually creating some distance between himself and his mother. He's saying, this may be your concern, but it's not mine. Why are you involving me? In other words, you don't have a claim on me in this regard. It's a little bit of a rebuke. So he is beginning his public ministry. He's laser-focused on what he came to do, on doing his father's will, his father's agenda. No one else is going to dictate or manipulate him to serve their agenda. So Jesus is saying, woman, you can't be presumptuous with me, okay? I'm not at your disposal. I have an agenda from my father, and I must carry it out. Okay, so Mary is coming to him, relating to him as her son. But now, as Jesus begins his public ministry, son of man, son of God, are primary over son of Mary and son of Joseph. You see? So there's actually a similar thought in Matthew 12. Um, Jesus' mother and brothers came and asked to speak to him, and it's quite likely that's because, you know, they were thinking he's... Maybe, maybe he needs to be brought inside. Um, you know, he's making some crazy claims. So Jesus says, who is my mother and, my bro- and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, because of what Jesus was coming to do, to create a new people, born again, family of God, right? The ultimate allegiance was spiritual, not biological. Obviously, that doesn't mean biological is unimportant, but there's a priority. So, D.A. Carson puts it this way. Um, He said, this is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for his future, Uh, for her future, like, like we looked at before. But she, like every other person, must come to him as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare presume to approach him on an inside track, a lesson even Peter had to learn. Remember, 
he, he's predicting his death, and, and Jesus, or Peter said to Jesus, you know, you're not going to suffer like this. And he said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so, few important details as we get oriented to this story. We need to understand weddings back then. We need to understand how big of a deal it is that the wine ran out and whose responsibility that was. It was the groom, the bridegroom, and what Jesus means by woman. Why are you involving me in this? Okay? So Mary responds by speaking to the servants. Verse 5, do whatever he tells you. And now we're going to get to the sign. Point number two. So Mary was most likely not expecting a miracle here, okay? So down in verse 11, this was the first of Jesus' signs. Um, There are some, you know, apocryphal writings out there floating about where Jesus did some, you know, childhood miracles, and all that's just bunk. This was the first sign, okay? So he didn't sit in his room when he was 12 and, you know, create new species of lizards for fun, you know, when he was bored. He didn't do magic tricks on the playground with his friends. Watch this, you know. No, this is the first sign. So Mary almost certainly is not expecting some shocking miracle. She's leaning on a responsible son to help her deal with this problem. Perhaps to help her get some more wine, perhaps to speak to the guests so that there's not like an outcry against the groom. Who knows? But now let's look at what Jesus did. We're going to observe the sign. Okay? So, verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Um, Stone was less um, porous than clay. Clay could become unclean, and you would have to just smash it. But stone was less porous, and so wouldn't become unclean. So, you know, for purification, these stone jars each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are big jars. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the, matter of the, feast, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. So this would be when palates are more sensitive and discerning. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Okay, so here's the sign that Jesus does. So let's observe it and see what we see. So six stone water jars holding... 20 to 30 gallons, okay? So let's just split the difference. We'll go with the the middle. 25 gallons times 6, 150 gallons. Typical bottle of wine. If you go to the store, 750 milliliters, right? There are roughly 3,800 milliliters in a gallon. So that's slightly more than five bottles per gallon. So five bottles times 150 gallons This is like making 750 bottles of wine. Good wine. Really good wine. How much does a good bottle of wine cost? This is good wine. 15 to 40 bucks. Obviously, it could be a lot more than that. So let's say Jesus' wine is 20 bucks a bottle. That's a total steal, I know. 
um, if Jesus is your vintner, but it's a $15,000 wedding present. Josh, uh, Chelsea, you guys, would that be good? $15,000 wedding present? Okay. So after those servants fill up those big stone jars, and he says to them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. They did so. I mean, just stop and think about what just happened. Just, just like that. Water, really good wine. Just like that. In a moment. It's like crazy, magical, miraculous, awesome. So Augustine said this. He says, Even as that which the servants put into the water pots was turned into wine by the doing of the Lord, so in like manner also is what the clouds pour forth, changed into wine by the doing of the same Lord. But we do not wonder at the latter, because it happens every year. It has lost its marvelousness by its constant recurrence, and it suggests a greater consideration than that which was done in the water pots. For who is there that considers the works of God whereby this whole world is governed and regulated, which is not amazed the over... <laughs> I think I have a typo. Um, you get the idea. It's amazing and overwhelming by the miracles, okay? So I read this um, to the boys last night. I, I read this a long time ago, and it came back to mind, and it's just kind of a powerful point along these same lines. Have you ever thought about how glorious the rain is? So in the book of Job, chapter 5, um, it says, God does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. So here's what the writer says. Is rain a great and unsearchable wonder wrought by God? Picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. A few wells keep the family and animals supplied with water, but if the crops are to grow and the family is to be fed from month to month, water has to come on the fields from another source. From where? So there's this dialogue that this writer has with himself. Well, the sky. The sky? Water will come out from the clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile, that's all we're talking about, one inch of rain, one square mile, of farmland during the night, that would be 27,878,000 cubic feet of water, which is 206,300,000 gallons, which is 1,650,500,000 pounds of water. That's heavy. So how does it get up in the sky and stay up there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets up there by evaporation. Really, that's a nice word. What's it mean? It means that the water sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. Oh, I see. Then how does it get down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? The water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between 0.00001 and 0.0001 centimeters wide. That's small. What about the salt? Salt? Yes, the Mediterranean Sea is salt water. That would kill the crops. What about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. Oh, so the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, and then carries it for 300 miles and then dumps it on the farm. 
Well, it doesn't dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, the wheat would be crushed. So the sky dribbles the billion pounds of water down in little drops, and they have to be big enough to fall for one mile, one mile or so, without evaporating, and small enough to keep from crushing the wheat stalks. How do all these microscopic specks of water that weigh a billion pounds get heavy enough to fall, if that's the way to ask the question? Well, it's called coalescence. What's that? It means the specks of water start bumping into each other and join up and get bigger. And when they're big enough, they fall. Just like that? Well, not exactly, because they would just bounce off each other instead of joining up if there was no electric field present. What? Never mind. Take my word for it. I think instead I'll just take Job's word for it. I still don't see why drops ever get to the ground, because if they start falling as soon as they're heavier than air, they would be too small not to evaporate on the way down, but if they wait to come down, what holds them up till they're big enough not to evaporate? Yes, I'm sure there's a name for that too, but I'm satisfied now that by any name, this is a great and unsearchable thing that God has done. So, okay. There's all kinds of glory all around us that we just don't see. And certainly, this miracle right here is glorious. So, I like what uh, Cornelius Plantinga says of this sign. One more quote here. In John 2, Jesus goes to a wedding, and his mother reports a wine shortage, so Jesus goes to work. He makes some wine. In fact, he makes a lot of wine, plenty of wine, maybe 150 gallons or so. When it comes to making wine, Jesus has an advantage over other vintners because he is the one through whom everything was made in the beginning. Jesus knows his business. And so he makes very good wine, special reserve wine that bursts with fruit and makes everybody's heart glad indeed. The gospel says it's a sign of his glory. We want to know what this mysterious glory is and why we should, be, why we should see it in winemaking. Jesus does just what his father is doing. Jesus makes lots of wine at Cana because he comes from a winemaking family. And just by the way, I, I think this might be something that John intended. If you look at verse 1, it says, on the third day. So John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, and then now, 2.1, on the third day. What was created on the third day? The vines that would have carried the grapes. Hmm. Okay. So every fall, God turns water into wine in France and Chile and Napa Valley. Gregor the Great said that at Cana, Jesus just did a small, speeded-up version of what God does all the time in the great vineyards of the world. Jesus makes wine for people because they're at a wedding, and he wants them to flourish there. He wants to make their joy full. So there's some glory revealed, right? He's manifesting his glory, and... His disciples put their faith in him. We're supposed to see his glory and trust him. But we actually miss the point if we simply fixate on the size of the gift or the superiority of the wine. In one sense, these writers are focused on the miracle, not the sign. So there's actually a greater glory, which I think in the past I was too fixated on this glory to see what the sign was pointing to. Okay? The point of a sign is not merely to be impressed with the miracle. 
What does a sign do? It points you to something or someone else, something greater. John actually never uses the word for miracle, dunamis, in the Gospel of John. That's actually the favorite word of the, the other Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Mark, and Luke. So in those cases, the emphasis is sometimes on power, but here it's on significance. So the point is not, wow, did you see that? So impressive. The point is, whoa, hmm, what, what does this mean? Who, who is this? What's he here to do? So we actually need to see the point of the sign with eyes of faith. You could be impressed with a miracle without seeing its significance. So the point of these signs is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. So faith is the appropriate response. So um, we've already considered last week that this glory might be unexpected. Okay? God in the flesh? What? We may expect, you know, impressive displays of power, but Jesus came in obscurity and humility. He came to serve and to give his life away, not to, you know, rule with an iron fist. So we need to pay closer attention to the pointers in this passage to catch the significance of the sign, okay? So that's point number three, the significance of the sign. Look back at verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to, to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So you've got you to gotta track with me here. Okay? We've got to do some investigation, some observation here, and figure out what is the point of this sign. Why did Jesus answer his mother this way? My hour has not yet come. What is his hour? What's that referred to? Well, again, another really key word in the Gospel of John, hour. Let me just show you a few places where it's used. Look at John 7.30. I think it'll be up here. So there was questions swirling about whether or not Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the religious authorities. They wanted to squash his influence. But in verse 30, it says this, They were tr seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Okay. Again, in chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So then, kind of begs the question, when did the hour come, right? When was his hour? Well, John 12, 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he's speaking of his death in this context. And then in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Save me from the cross? No. For this purpose, I've come to this hour. So the hour refers to the cross. But then how is that an answer? Okay, back in chapter 2, how is that an answer to his mother? All right, you tracking? So Mary was thinking about the wine at this wedding. She didn't want the bridegroom to be shamed. She wanted the guests to enjoy the celebration. Jesus is thinking of his hour. What was his hour intended to accomplish? He didn't come to the earth. He didn't take on flesh and blood to make more vineyards. 
and more wine for village weddings. He came to earth to die for his bride so that the new wine of the new covenant would begin to flow. So he's actually thinking of his responsibility as the bridegroom. His wedding feast to come. Because do you know how the new age, like the age when God would really show up, the day of the Lord would happen, and all of his enemies would be judged, and, and he would rescue his people. Do you know how that, that great day was talked about in the Old Testament? Well, consider a couple passages here, okay? See, our sin ruined the party. God made everything good, good, very good, just flourishing. And our sin is what causes us to languish, causes us to suffer for there to be lack and pain and suffering and all of that. So when God shows up to save, to redeem, to rescue, listen to how the Old Testament prophesies of this great day. Jeremiah 31, 12. Then or they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, the city of God, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Or Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. He is thinking of his hour when he is going to die so that he can be our Messiah so that these messianic purposes, these promises can be fulfilled. So the inauguration, the beginning of this kingdom, this new people, these promises fulfilled, and then ultimately the consummation of all of his renewing work when he returns. So no wonder John the Baptist, in the very next chapter in John, chapter 3, says this, John three twenty-five. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Hey, those stone jars were all about purification, right? And then in verse 28, you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him, right? He's just preparing the way. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Okay, so even in John, Jesus is spoken of as the bridegroom. Jesus spoke regularly of the coming kingdom like a wedding feast. Okay, Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And then the consummation, like the, the party that all of this is moving toward. Carl read it from Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage 
of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there is, folks, a bridegroom who is responsible for the wine at that feast in Revelation 19. In fact, for all of the provisions. How is that going to happen? How are all these promises going to be fulfilled? Only by Jesus willingly going to his death in our place. So he laid down his life for his bride. He gave himself for us so that we could be washed and ready for the wedding day. So we're all dirty because of our sin. We've all been unfaithful to God. He made us and gave us all of these good things. And we basically kind of thumb our nose at him and we go after other loves. And instead of just saying, fine, and just leaving us and condemning us, rejecting us, sending us to hell, he comes after us to rescue his bride, to lay his life down so that we could be cleansed and purified and invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the jars that Jesus chose were not by accident. The Jewish rites of purification, they had all these rites and rituals in order to be ritually pure so that they could meet with God and worship him. Acceptable worship. But water can't wash your soul. Blood can't take away, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, right? We needed a greater water, a greater sacrifice, and that was Jesus. He died to really cleanse us from our sin. All of those purification rites were a provisional system pointing to the day when Jesus would come and fulfill them all and bring the new wine of the kingdom. We heard it last week in John 1. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So do you see that's actually the significance of the sign. The old covenant's passing away. The new covenant is going to be established. What comes next in John's gospel? The cleansing of the temple. You see, this is why Jesus came. He's going to really cleanse his people. And actually, he says, I'm the temple. I'm the place where God meets with people, where atonement is made so that God can dwell with his people. So Jesus has the authority to cleanse the temple and his death will cleanse his people. And he's going to build a spiritual temple. He's going to build his people into a living temple, right? So John 2.18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Cleansing the temple, upending tables, you know? What right do you have to do this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I'll raise it up. So the resurrection is the greatest sign, the final sign in the Gospel of John. So again, these things are strung together. Purification pots, Jesus turns the water into wine. 
He cleanses the temple. He talks to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. He doesn't get it. Chapter 4, he heals on the Sabbath. Okay? Over and over again, he's saying, I'm bringing the better. I'm bringing the real cleansing, the real healing, all of that. So he came to die for his bride, to buy her back, buy us back from debtor's prison. Like, if you are aware of your, like, if, if you, maybe you're in here this morning and you came in not being sure what you believe, and, but you know you're dirty. You know your guilt. And you can try to make up for it. You can try to atone for your sins, but it's never gonna, it's never gonna do it. Only Jesus can wash you clean. Only Jesus can atone for your sins. And you can trust him. That's the whole point of this gospel, that you would see these signposts of his glory and his grace, and seeing who he is, you would believe in him. You can do that right now. So he came to die for his bride, to buy us back from debtor's prison, all our unfaithfulness, to bear our sin, to cleanse us so that we can be radiant and white on the wedding day. He was thinking of his wedding day. That's the purpose of his hour. So he's thinking of the celebration that he would shed his blood to provide for. Listen to Isaiah 25, 6. Love this passage. This is such a beautiful prophetic picture of the end when Jesus returns and everything is set to rights. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So Jesus is the bridegroom. The wine of that feast in Isaiah 25 is his responsibility. And guess what? That has to do with him. His mom said, hey, they ran out of wine. He says, what does this have to do with me? I'm here to provide for the ultimate feast. Okay, I'm going to do something just as a little pointer, a little pencil sketch of what I'm really here for. That bridegroom dropped the ball, failed in his responsibilities to provide for the wedding feast. This bridegroom is not going to fail. He is going to have grace upon grace hospitality to us between now and the day when he serves us this glorious feast forever. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Fullness of joy forever. So this wedding miracle is actually a living parable. It's intended to be a living parable, a preview of the great day of the wedding feast of the Lamb. So the quantity of the wine was impressive. The quality was impressive. It's just an acted parable of the coming wedding feast of the Lamb. Fullness of joy forever. So Jesus reveals his glory. 
The sign points to the ultimate sign of the cross and resurrection and even beyond that to the the accomplishment of all of these promises, the consummation of history. Okay, so step back. Just one final thought here before we close and we're going to sing a couple songs before we're done. In the Bible, wine represents positively when it's spoken of positively. It, can, it represents joy and gladness. You can see Psalm 104 for that, okay? So Jesus was single all of his life, all of his earthly life. So that wedding had him thinking of his hour, his wedding day. The cross and then his wedding day. See, there was a cross before for the, the joy in its fullness. There was a cross between him and the joy set before him. So any, I mean, you, you, a lot of you have probably experienced this. Weddings aren't always the most joyful occasions for everybody. So this sign is about the joy of the wedding feast to come, but it also says something to the longing and the ache and the waiting between now and when we sit down at that wedding feast of the Lamb. So, so as we wait, so see Jesus, for Jesus there was a cross before the celebration. As we wait, we see the glory of this bridegroom he is not going to fail to provide everything necessary for his beloved bride to flourish. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But this life is hard, and there's a lot of longing and ache that happens between now and the wedding feast. So how do we wait? We don't yet have the fulfillment. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. So we can be satisfied in him, but we're ultimately not going to be totally satisfied until he returns and we sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we have Christ and we have him forever, but we still walk through the wilderness of this world and we wait for that day that he was waiting for even at that wedding in Cana. It's actually one of the reasons why we fast. Okay, one, one more passage here before we, we close. Do you remember in Luke 5? So Levi, tax collector, he makes this great feast, and a bunch of tax collectors and um, sinners, you know, recline at table with him because those were his friends, right? And Jesus ate with them, which was kind of like offensive to the Pharisees, to the um, religious leaders. And they said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, look at this. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's a crazy claim. I'm the bridegroom. 
why would they fast? I'm here. Now there is a day coming. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus is going to die, and he's going to ascend, he's going to rise again and ascend to the Father. And even though we have him and he's with us by his spirit, we're not home yet. We're not totally at the party yet. And there's a lot of longing and aching and sometimes you just fast because you miss him so much. Only if he really is our greatest treasure. But you see how that speaks to the waiting. You see how that speaks to the fact that Jesus is our heart's desire. And we have him, but we don't yet have him. These promises are ours, but we haven't experienced their fullness yet, and so we wait for him with our eyes fixed on him. So we all need to run the race that's set before us with endurance, with our eyes fixed on Jesus. So that's why we look for, like treasure hunters, the glory of Christ in the Gospel of John, because when we see his glory, we will put our trust in him as we have our eyes fixed on him it's actually how we're enabled to wait all the way until our joy is full let's pray Lord, I thank you that you want us to see your glory. You want us to see your greatness and your goodness. And I thank you that even greater than displays of power, as much as you have and continue to do that through creation and even through turning water into wine at a word, the greater miracle, the greater grace, the greater glory is that you would take dirty rebels, unfaithful spiritual whores like us, and you would do everything necessary to cleanse us and betroth us to yourself and prepare us for the day when you will present us to yourself blameless, spotless, radiant, and you will welcome us to the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we will celebrate with you forever. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that you have done. I pray that we would be blown away by that, that it would be so sweet to us, that we would long for that day and fix our eyes on Jesus and be enabled to wait. Walking the road with you all the way to the party. So Lord, please give us grace. Give us grace to wait. Give us grace to 
fix our eyes, our gaze on you, to see your glory and be satisfied in you until the day when we know fullness of joy forever with you. In your name we pray, amen.